Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today we've got a conversation with Mike from The Devil Wears Prada. He's been their front man since 2005, since the very beginning, since which time they've been continuously active, out there grinding it, making it happen, making records, EPs, follow-ups to EPs, and everything you can think of, putting on a great show. They're a band that I saw um, pretty much right at the beginning of their career, did some touring with them early. Uh, and it's been really cool to see what they've been able to do over the years and how they've been able to manage. It's been cool to see them come to understand who they are, what they do, and for their audience to understand themselves. And, you know, it's this whole thing that happens when bands can be around for a long time that's this very cool. And, of course, they've got a new record. It's their eighth full length called Color Decay, and they're making big impact with it. It's all over the place. Solid State's really happy with the direction of it and the response to it. Uh, I think Solid State's a great home for the Devil Wears Prada. I'm glad that they've been able to um, create a good relationship there. And I think you'll enjoy this episode very much. I want to say thank you to everybody who came out to Labeled Fest across the last three legs of it and made it a wild success. Um, we sold a great amount of tickets. Uh, the promoters were happy. The agents happy. The, all the bands were happy. Got a ton of good video. Made some audio recordings. It was really just, I mean, very special thing. Um, and to have it under the name labeled and have people kind of, you know, to have that mean something to anybody at all is really, really cool. So I'm feeling pretty motivated about the whole labeled thing in general and am looking to do some new development and push more boundaries and do more stuff with this the rest of this year and next year. So uh, thank you, everybody, for, you know, just sincerely for being a part of this podcast. And for me, this whole podcast is, is an experiment in just learning and studying how people work and groups work and audiences work and uh, telling stories and collecting history and preserving stuff. Those are kind of the values that, that drive me here, and I'm really glad to know that they uh, resonate. And I think there's a lot more we can do to those ends, so stay tuned on that, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Mike. Mike, I was thinking we could work even a little bit backwards on this one. A lot of times I start and go through people's like backstory or history or being that kind of thing, and I know we've kind of covered some of that last time that you were here and everything as well when you and Jeremy were here, I think, last time. But, you know, at this point, the Devil Wears Prada story to me is just, uh, I think it's just one of longevity. I mean, there's a lot of bands that have come and gone and reunited and all kind of stuff like that. But your band just seems like it's had a special gear of uh, a special level of stability and clear vision across time to be able to hold it really together. And something about that was kind of there from the the original beginning when you guys were and you know i guess you think of it as you were kids when you when you first started in 2006 where would you you call yourself kids at that point yeah i mean 2006 was first tour 2005 was when we started so i was 16 at the time i'm 33 now um i don't know i i think the the level of resilience i always loved like Althor Ice always kept it together. Every time I die, I always kept it together for so long and everything. And, you know, just uh, you still want to be making tunes, Jeremy and I. And, you know, we have the, the group around us that have worked hard to be making tunes, too, and uh, feel like we're at our best point ever right now. Yeah, it's cr it's crazy. I mean, it's, you're crushing it, and it's like a, you know, it's just like this full realized thing, That's but it's also so... Uh, connected to what it was originally like it it doesn't uh, it's neither the same exact thing it's evolved but it stayed consistent and it seems like the band has had relatively low drama and it, you know and all those things and my sense of being around you guys in I guess it was 2006 or whatever that was the what was the first tour you did uh, we did our own like self book tours in 06 between my junior and senior year of um, high school. And then when I graduated in 07, we did Sounds of the Underground, then the Chiodos tour with you guys. That was 07. Yeah. 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 And at that point, you guys really just seemed to be, you know, all the, all the bands that, a lot of the bands that popped up in that era, uh, they, they may have been young or whatever, but they didn't seem that they had a real, fo you, you felt like they might come and go, is, is the way I would put it. At that time, the bands that were coming up in that scene felt like they would pop up and go away and kind of stuff like that. And, um, you know, 
was it did did you guys have the visions that you would last a long time or did that kind of just come incidentally uh you know it's funny how you mentioned that because it's like what made us think of that about bands because i definitely felt the same way you know doing warp tour and seeing certain bands you're like yeah this is a phase you know um i don't know i i you know i kind of i joined prada pretty incidentally or accidentally and then um, I just still love doing it and Jeremy's the same way. And again, you know, we have guys around us that also want to be making records and, and playing shows and going on tour. So I don't know. I, I, I definitely feel like we always had this, like, you know, we're pretty jokey. We have a certain level of humor, but at the same time, we were a very real kind of commitment to, and even though, you know, a lot of bands have had to work harder and, wait much longer before they were to have any kind of longevity to their, you know, musical projects. Like I think we've never taken it for granted, or at least Jeremy and I, even in times when we did, we're, we're much more conscious of that now and in our gratitude and whatnot, but there's always been like a certain severity there. I think to Jeremy and I and, and, uh, approaching, you know, this band specifically severity i like that word tell tell me what that word means in this context just just like the the seriousness of it um and you know i i remember when i was a kid and even it's different you know leaving your loved ones in your home behind now versus you know leaving your parents house and your high school girlfriend like it was back then but i remember times where you know it's a drag and you know you don't want to it's like going to a job you don't want to go to some days you know and and wanting to be all right maybe maybe this isn't for me but um just the the seriousness of it and and not wanting to take it for granted or not wanting to say like okay we're folding the band and coming back in two years or three years or four years so the seriousness of it is that because it's uh uh was there a goal in mind or was it the the keep the financials going like what is the thing that was serious to to that needed to keep going i mean i would like to i would like to be all sort of up my own ass and be like money is never an issue but it certainly is i mean that's the reality of it um i think to jeremy and i or at least to me it was like just even when times are tight or times are tough like i don't want to be doing anything else i don't want to try anything else you know like i've worked a, a handful of odd jobs throughout my career and even very recently with the pandemic and uh you know i'm always happy to get home but at the same time there's always the drive to leave and and to to continue and um and to get back on stage and perform and and you know do my best to express myself um hopefully most accurately it kind of depends the set list i've come to find <laughs> what are some of those uh jobs you've done additionally to this uh i've been a dog walker i've done order fulfillment at a warehouse um i worked door at a bar and then during covid i was a uh, merchandiser for a beverage distributor so i just would drive around to different stores and basically keep stock on the product that my the company that hired me you know keep, keep stock of what they distributed whether energy drinks or alcohol um and that was my 20 hours a week during covid as well fascinating i think that there's a lot of bands that came up but you know in the late very late 90s and early 2000s that had no um you know no thought that they could have a make a earn a living much less a long-term living but right at the uh time that you came it it was when that did seem possible so that's really neat to see that you knew that that was a possibility versus something you do for a couple of summers which i think was the previous mindset before the scene got to its critical mass i guess it it was kind of a thing but you could see that it was possible to have a career or even a long-term career right right away maybe maybe that helped because you I, I i guess from your perspective did you blow up fast and feel that as oh we immediately blew up um you know i never looked at it as like 
this is what I'm doing. Like, this is my job or my career. I, I guess I look at it as my job, but I've never really looked at it as a career. You know, there's no pension, you know, or <laughs> retirement plan or something. Of course, I could devise one, though I have not. But I mean, I don't know. I, I, uh, I just kind of, you know, I remember. So the the older members of the band, they wanted uh, Chris and I, who are the two youngest members of the band, to drop out of high school and start touring um, before we graduated in '07 because we met Dave Shapiro who's booked our bands forever in 2006. And I remember at one point he's like, I have a haste the day tour. And the band was like, we have to do this. Like, this is, you know, it would be crazy good for the band. And Chris and I were like, no, we're graduating. And that was a point of contention. So at least to my perception, when, when I did graduate high school in 07, it was like, okay, like I've been wanting to do this everything is in line, you know, like the, the trains on the tracks to be doing this. And perhaps it's some level of naivete or ignorance, but I'm just still on that track. So like it, it's never been much more uh, philosophical as far as making, you know, a lifestyle and uh, uh, out of playing and product. Yeah. Well, it comes kind of passively. So yeah, I, and I, I I see and agree that's not really about money, but it does. I mean, it does creep in there to be part of your identity. You know, Mike from Devil Wears Prada, like whatever you do, side jobs or not, is you know when you're doing even when you're doing the merchandising job, you know, don't you have an awareness that I'm Mike from Devil Wears Prada doing this job, right? Like you could get sp- noticed or recognized. Or if anybody asks any questions about your life, that's going to be the thing that, you know, attracts all the gravity of the, of the conversation, you know? Yeah. I mean, it certainly, you know, it, it takes more than 40 hours a week once you're on tour, obviously, or, you know, at a remote location recording or writing. Um, I, I like, you know, I, I, I certainly hold the Devil's Prada in, in utmost gratitude. And again, I'm grateful for, the lifestyle that's sort of afforded me and, you know, the, the fact that this is my occupation or, you know, for this long, but at the same time, you know, like I wouldn't think I'm defined as a singer in the band or like, that's like the, the core of my personality or my being. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like I, I, I certainly, and you can see it, I think pretty transparently to certain singers you see who are like, okay, they're made to be on stage. They like, they live for these moments or the, to be the one, the biggest person in the room. And while I, I suppose there's some component of that to, to what I do, it's not what I live for to find me mm-hmm. um, specifically. Okay. I want to take a second to feature someone named Eric from the labeled members groups band who you've heard of before Alabama death walk. They're an awesome band. So you hear a clip of a couple songs that are out now. One is called Old Fires, and the other one is called Baggage. So Alabama Death Walk is an introspective, emo-leaning, indie, and Americana group with moments of heavy distortion intensity. Eric is the primary creative force behind the band, and he grew up a second-generation tooth-and-nail solid-state kid. He bruised his tailbone jumping off a stage at an early chariot show. And I know those early chariot shows must have been really, really crazy. So obviously a big influence on him is a lot of solid state and tooth and nail bands as cities burn come now sleeps another one of his favorites and they've accomplished a lot they've toured with jim ward uh from at the drive-in they've uh opened up for appleseed cast and built to spill done a bunch of very cool stuff and check this out self-proclaimed post-evangelical rock music i love that um it's got great lyrics about faith doubt religious trauma community hope all that kind of stuff so it's a real effort for transparent lyricism and i think that's awesome maybe it's in the vein of me without you manchester orchestra pedro the lion do that kind of thing as cities burn of course uh, and i want to thank eric for being a labeled uh, member and for being part of this community In 2021, they released a Kickstarter-funded Young Runner album, which some of the folks in the group um, were really supportive of, so that was very cool. And then these two singles this year, which are great, Old Fires and Baggage, streaming on all platforms now. So please check out Alabama Death Walk 
one of our own here. So go give a follow to Alabama Death Walk on whatever platform it is that you use. And find him on Instagram. Reach out. Give Eric a message. Tell him good work or whatever. And Eric, thank you very much. Keep it up. Yeah, that's a dangerous way to be, you know, because then your identity's, you know, obviously really tied to the success or the ups and downs of the, the marketplace or the trends or the style. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of people who really thrive thrive on that. Do you think it makes them – do you think the people that are born for that or identify that, do you think that makes them – do you think they're better for it? Like that that's a whole level of like total front man, whatever that is? I see what you're saying. I don't know if it's a, a measure of what's – better or worse perhaps that can make a better frontman or a better musician for some people you know depending on what they do in terms of playing music specifically but um i don't know like i i i kind of allot it to being like a hockey player as far as like if you get paid to play hockey for a living like yeah you're obviously good enough at it to be a professional but at the same time like i don't think i would ever like I don't know why I'm getting some junk call right now. Um, I would never think that, you know, to their family or to their significant other, their partners or children or whatnot, that, that like that is the core of them, you know, or mm-hmm. if it was the core of them and if everything was hockey or something, like, does that make them a better player or not? Like, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. I don't I don't think it's so contingent. Mm hmm. Um, another thing that's fascinating is that the genre itself has had such staying power when I do also feel that the, whatever type of music this is in the you know wider or even more narrow sense, I do think it was seen by many also as a temporary maybe trend. Did, that, did you expect that this type of music would have the staying power over decades? Uh, honestly, no. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i certainly with you there. I think that, um, uh, you know, a lot of it was so phased out for a long time there. And I think yeah. Gen Z is having a, a moment with, I think, like outside of metalcore, and they're by no means a metalcore band, but you can kind of look at like what Korn and Deftones are doing, you know, like these bands that were, huge you know like late 90s early 2000s when i was finding my way through angsty aggressive music and you know now deftones is selling out arenas again it, it, it's crazy i think it's just i don't i think it belittles the craft to call it a trend but mm-hmm. at the same time i think that that aggressive kind of side of things is, is certainly having another moment right now um and i think that it's awesome that Bands like Bring Me the Horizon and The Day to Remember and, you know, Architects, Parkway Drive, Beartooth, these really big bands in the genre are within the, you know, relative subgenres are so big to kind of break those those walls down in order for, you know, a screamy breakdown band like the Dev Wars product to also receive popularity and, you know, our peers throughout the genre. That is a really wonderful explanation i i think of the terrain because you start with new you know maybe we're saying even new metal bands which is you know i connect it from grunge all the way through to new metal and then mm-hmm. and then there's this super sub genre stuff that comes out that that we're a part of and then it goes through a down period which i'm fascinated what by the down period itself and then over time the underground scenes have really had stay in power and then reconnected back in a fluid way all the way through from like the Deftones to Corn to even the grunge bands and stuff all the way down. And it's just maybe the whole community is of uh, heavy music or aggressive music. And, and they, it, instead of separated, it seems like there is a fluid way that, you know, it comes all the way down from those bands all the way down to small niche bands and everything in between. And it's all part of the, ups and downs of heavy music or something like that. Yeah, I, I think there's certainly truth to that. Um, I keep coming back to uh, a phrase that 
Adam Scatula says in, in Tom from Stray is, uh, uh, I think it's like high tide rises, raises all ships. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that, that very much applies. I think, and it's also, I not on just getting on a total side tangent here, but like, I think that COVID's one of the really positive things about it is kind of alleviated the competition between bands, at least from what I've seen as far as like, knowing the headspace that was happening during like Warp Tour and whatnot, and now seeing the camaraderie between the bands I just mentioned to like, I think it's actually a really highly beneficial, wonderful thing. And I think it, it works well to, to serve the scene by all means. Um, how, how does that work? What was the, first of all, what was the competitive landscape that you're describing? I think it was just always like, it always felt like so angsty or like, like the kind of friction of like warp tour camps, you know, it was like the, what do you call like the little groups in high school, you know, like clicks. Yeah. 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 Like it almost felt like that. Um, and it was always like, okay, who's got the bigger crowd? You know, you, you find out who's selling more merch and like, I guess there's a, there's something, you know, there can be something nice about competition in terms of defying complacency and trying to, you know, outdo, you know, your yesterday or whatever is, is what a terrible phrase that is. I just cooked up but, <laughs> uh, like inspirational. I, I, I like it. Yeah. Like I, it, it was always like that. And now it's like, you know, you see another band like outdraw you or something like, or, you know, you hear that they sold this much merch or this many tickets at a room you just played or you're about to play or something. And it's like, I don't know the the level i i guess there can it kind of depends on the person whether there's notions of of envy or jealousy there but i think it's just the general vibe now as we've got older and we're also starved of our lifestyle throughout covid is is more like a good for you kind of mentality Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. like i wish i was them or i want to beat them yeah, if you just see turnstile, you know, taking things to the next level, you can't take that as a bad sign for the rest of us, for instance. That's for a, sure. you know, if somebody can if there if anybody can break out, if anybody can break new records, if anybody can fill arenas or fill them again, those are all positive signs, you know, coming from from some direction, no doubt. What uh years did you do warp tour? Uh we did 08 Oh nine, eleven, and I I forget which one was our last, but it was probably thirteen or fourteen, I think. Mm-hmm. And you guys were real. You guys were. Uh, it's like if you're a Warp Tour fan and you'd been going for all the years or whatever. There's this certain point of time time in there where you get these probably you would look at it as under oath and the devil wears Prada where it's like this kind of music coming out of that scene where they're just going insane and it's just crushing main stage at warp tour. And I remember when, you know, under oath was doing that and the other bands or the click bands or the bands, the old school bands were like, who the hell is, what is this? You know, what are, what kind of music is this and how is it, you know, dominant on the main stage at warp tour so y'all must have had a lot of moments and i wasn't on it any of the years that you were but um was there that sense of like oh, who is this and and you know because ha- you you were having pretty powerful you know turnouts and stuff from main stage on warp tour on all that right yeah um warp tour is a difficult tour and there's <laughs> there's a lot of bad um that's sort of come out and manifested itself there in that lifestyle and that culture but um is as, as rough it is as it is to spend you know eight weeks in a in parking lots and porta potties around the summer in the states um it was certainly a great growing point and again just to be completely transparent it it, it paid the bills you know like it, it paid us well having so many people out there and and those gatherings at main stage so it it's certainly uh a notable chapter in, in the Prada book for sure. Yeah. It seems like a huge milestone. And to me, that's just like this, the warp tour in amphitheaters and, and all that is really just puts. And then the bands that are up there is bands like you guys. And that is like the wider culture outside of, of the underground scene or even the heavy music scene. 
everybody knows what Warp Tour is. Everybody understands that's the counterculture, that's the subculture, the whatever it is, the kids that are this or that, uh, you know, however you describe them across the more than one generation or whatever. But at some point, it is a band like, and it is the Devil Wears Prada that is just crushing it on that, you know, major cultural event on the main stage. And everybody knows about it. And the fact that our anything from our scene, you know, has, re- has reached that point and that those logos and those names and those T-shirts are at that cultural level. It's just something I think our whole, I mean, I feel a gratitude for it that that's possible. Do you know what I mean? I don't feel, comp- I certainly don't feel competitive. I just feel like people that I know that do stuff like I do and my friends are at that cultural level, you know, of, of impact that people really see and know about. So from an outside point of view, I, f- I find that, you know, really really amazing and uh even through some of those years that you described that would be even when the genre itself was probably kind of down a little bit what what are the years that you feel that it was the hardest sledding from you know 05 to to where we are today i think definitely the end point um the end point was kind of seeing the numbers come down and i forget how if i don't think we did it the last year of its existence uh i i should be able to recall you know it's easy for me to remember like 0506 through like maybe 2011 2012 and then i i lose all the years it gets foggy yeah it real foggy but um uh yeah i i would consider then was was like not only just like for us personally you know, our, our own band's popularity wasn't at its peak, but also the Warped Tour ticket numbers weren't great. And, you know, that obviously has a trickle down to merchandise sales and I think even just a general vibe and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if I can so accurately speak to that. I think the sort of down point of like this kind of metalcore and whatnot was still a few years after that. Mm-hmm. And during the hardest times of that, was there times that there that you you felt was hard for your band particularly, or or questioned what the the length would be, or is it always been clear that you would be able to uh, adjust what you do to keep going and keep making music? <laughs> you know, it's funny. It never hit me. I I I can't speak for Jeremy by any means, but. Uh, I, 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 and I, I can't even speak for Andy, who's our bass player, who was the, the last member to leave the band, who was one of the originals. Um, but Andy was getting his bachelor degree, and then now he's getting his master's degree, and he's had a second kid. And obviously, with the coming of the first kid, it became pretty obvious that he was, that this wasn't going to be a lifestyle so uh, sustainable for him versus, you know, where his sights were set. Um, so I can't really say if money was an issue for him being like, okay, I've got a family all, you know, growing and whatnot. I'm now married and I need a more, uh, consistent sort of occupation. Um, I think that kind of hit the other members too. I don't really, I don't keep up with anyone besides Andy who's left the band, but, um, I think for them, money issues were a thing, although I don't want to put words in their mouth and I don't want to just be a you know, be some fool speculating here, but, um, I never really worried about it. You know, like, like when those down years were happening and it was like, okay, this, this tour didn't pay me enough to, you know, get through the summer or get through the next few months. I was just like, okay, well I'll find a job. I'll, I'll find a way to make ends meet. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I'm still here and I'm, I'm not homeless. And the drive to continue, uh, does it come more from or a combination of the your need to create things like what's well, fun to I like to create and that thing or uh, also that there are there regardless of how much money there is or, or opportunity that there are fans that want you to continue which of how do you uh, how do those two factors balance for you? I mean for me it's just like that's a great question. It, it, it's very, uh, it's never like, okay, I want to keep playing in product because maybe we make more money or I need the satisfaction of 
inflating my ego or something. To me, it's always like, if I think of the end of Prada, I always just think of like, like leaving, leaving it on the table, like leaving great songs on the table. Like I think of our new album and even moments on the act, the last record that was kind of shut down from, from COVID. Um, and when we put together some of those songs and, you know, you're in the studio or you're listening to the master at home later or whatever it might be, like I've always, I find this, this level of satisfaction. So I think just addictive, but also it fulfilling at the same time. Like I, I know that John who produces the band and plays keyboards in the band and our, our lead songwriter, I, I like thinking of what he can come up with and what a genius he is as, as a, as a creative and as a musician, it's, it's such a pleasure for me to be able to put my own stamp on that too. And I don't want to leave that. I don't want to leave that opportunity. That's kind of the, the sort of mindset nice. I, I hold. Good. That's a great answer. I'm, and I, I don't, there's no right or wrong answer, but I'm kind of, kind of honing in by jumping around. So what I'm, uh, and tell me if you feel that I'm perceiving it wrong, but the, power of being on that stage and commanding a giant crowd isn't necessarily the highest thing for you. It's not also money and it's maybe not even uh, just, you know, doing it out of duty for the fans or something like that. But you seem to the act of creation and collaboration uh, that, you know, the satisfaction you get at those moments for bringing the song or the creation into existence seems to be central for you. Oh, certainly, certainly. I, and I don't mean to sound like a, I, some holy figure or something, because the reality is, you know, if if Prada can headline, a, you know, sell more tickets than we ever have or sell more merchandise than we ever have, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, Sure, sure. I'm not going to like, if I can put an extra payment towards my mortgage, I'm not going to be like, I don't know, feel somehow like creatively compromised or something. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm finishing this tour. I did this tour and I'm going to do the next one. And that, you know, this puts out the songs. This is the the living cycle of, of playing in a band as we do. And ultimately, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes early next year because it's still wildly satisfying to me to be able to create in a tour. and. Um, I, I still just like get giddy, like going into a new studio. To me, it's mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. I don't know. I like like how things get made. Like I like touring factories and whatnot. Like we we were able to tour Third Man Records, Pressing Plant in Detroit, and like I think back to like touring Moog and Nash or uh, Asheville or mm-hmm. uh, Diadario Strings in in New York. And to me, I almost get that same kind of childlike giddiness getting into a studio and and that's a pleasure that's afforded by by being a member of the divorce prada and beautiful very much a central thing to me yeah as you yes, said central and so when you and you said it before you said something like when it's master is there a peak moment for you in the creation like when is that moment that gives you that the the highest high of, of creation in that process <laughs> what's funny is i don't think there is one like it's like some days, you know, writing lyrics or working can be a real grind or, you know, it's like, you know, kind of like pulling teeth. But at the same time, like, I don't, you know, like I'm not highly tuned in to editing the mixes or masters, not at all, in fact, like, or even like, I'm not like staring at every you know, mention on Instagram or something when the record does come out or, you know, like I I don't look at YouTube comments or really any kind of press. So there, there's really never that high. It's always just kind of chasing it to me. I I think the, the, the sort of substance of incomplacency is very much a a drive for me. The substance of complacency of of being non-complacent. I shouldn't say incomplacent. I don't think that's the term. <laughs> the substance of not being complacent? Yes, if that makes at all any any sense. It, it almost makes sense. You just got me <laughs> curious. I'd like to know more about that. You you can you help me understand that even more? It's fascinating. Yeah, 
I think it's just being driven by what by what's in the future or what's yet to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've actually come to find through therapy in the last few years that it, I've I've worked against myself or to the detriment of my own health always being so like like non-present like I always want to exist in the future I don't want to think about achievements in the past I don't want to think about mm-hmm. how great the record is doing right now and it's pre-sale or something like I, I want to think about like what's the song that I can make that's better than any of this or like how can I improve as a guitar player on the moments where I get to play live with the band um like to me that's that's the the fuel more more than anything so um and so you're changing as a person it sounds like in your view of how you see the health of of the creative process so it's like you're maybe tweaking that but the, there's a drive there to be better in the future for sure for sure um and I think what I've I've come to terms with is is trying to find any level of satisfaction because I think that's the thing that kind of is on the the other side or the negative side of that coin as far as always trying to better yourself is is taking the time to maybe give yourself some grace or feel some level of fulfillment or satisfaction from an achievement, which is something I've just kind of like always put off, but. I'm also recognizing that's a part of, you know, my personality and what, what drives, drives me as a, as a human. Does, um, the, you know, thought about the past or, uh, well, they thinking about the future and worrying about the future, a lot of times, uh, manifests as anxiety. Has that been something that you struggled with or led to therapy or anything like that? Not to put words in your mouth. I'm just curious this journey. No, I, I think you're entirely reactive entirely accurate excuse me i uh some the way my therapist sometimes talks about it when i'm getting real anxious or nervous and panicky leading up to a tour is basically is like you're worrying about crossing a bridge that does not yet exist and the fact of the matter is is that you successfully crossed all the other bridges over the course of your life when a situation or an issue arises aka the bridge you know, you'll be able to cross it fine. But right now you, there's no, you can't solve the issue of crossing the bridge if it doesn't exist. You know, you can't solve a problem when it has not yet arisen. So, um, that's a lot of what my anxiety looks like in, in terms of, uh, specifically, you know, doing my job as, as the, the vocalist in the Dead Wars product. But the um, state of being able to put yourself there can be highly productive when it has something to be channeled at. True, yeah. That's that's kind of the, the, I guess, a good thing about the anxiety is it forces me to do more. It's just that not, as much as I always try to measure things in doing, which is also something I've come to uncover through therapy, is that it, it doesn't satisfy everything. Like, it's not the end all be all being, you know, a, a checklist of things I've done, um, that it, it's not, you know, the conclusive thing to be like, okay, I'm, I'm having a good day or I'm a happy person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, how long have you been, uh, on this path of therapy and the introspection and stuff like that? Um, I started, uh, early 21 yep early 21 or end of 2020 um so a bit over a year and a half something like that and has that been um instrumental in is it is it having an impact on the creative process uh you know of this new record and and everything um i don't know what like the specific control or like kind of trickle down might be to the creative process. But I think that like I'm, I, I mentioned therapy all the time and I, I feel like I'm, I almost need to apologize for boasting about it because I don't mention it as being like good for me. I'm working on myself. I, I more so mention it as being like, I've come to find this tool that is so wonderfully helpful in terms of introspection. And I've come to find that I can avoid so many of my sort of mental tribulation 
by finding out more about how I tick. Tribulation. And, what a great word. Another one. <laughs> I, I, it's just, it, it's meant so much to me to be like, okay, like when I'm sitting here feeling like I'm on the brink of a panic attack or something, cause I'm going on tour in a week or something like I can look at it. I can look at my personality and, and my habits, my doings, my schedule, my routine, and I can very accurately assess why, you know, something is wrong or why I'm feeling off or nervous or panicky. And I just, it, it, it's a very pragmatic sort of process. And um, I kind of got into it just being like, well, I don't, I don't have anything to lose. Like, I don't, I don't have some level of vulnerability. I'm, I'm scared therapy is going to uncover. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, I've, it's really just been a, a really nice positive in, in every way since I always, when discussing it with, with other people was always like, even on days where like, you, you feel like you might not have that much to discuss or something, you can kind of come out of it and be like, wow, that like, you need it even on the good days as much as you need it on the bad days. Um, but yeah, that is um, in my mind that connects to, you know, it's like a, you've developed a curiosity for your own mind or how it works. And it reminds me of you touring the, the Dario or Moog factory or something mm-hmm. like that. You're looking back at yourself with with another person. And uh, you ha- is it uh, something about your mind that has that natural like a curiosity is a good place to put one's drive into understanding how something works. You can get lost in that. Um, you know, in a good, in a good way, but to be able to turn that back toward curiosity about how your own self works sounds like that pragmatic part of the approach. For sure. For sure. Um, again, I think that it's like, it's like that pragmatism and the practicality, I think not to get too far into it, but my, my grandfather was an engineer. Um, my, my father recently retired engineer. And like, that was what I was supposed to be <laughs> from mm-hmm. like the family yeah. perspective. Absolutely. And I ended up being the one that liked fiction uh, <laughs> more, more so than science, you know? So uh, I think that's kind of maybe a little bit of the trickle down is that I do like to look at things in, in the most logical terms when I can and, and when I can eliminate emotion and not to be like a emotionless individual or someone that's you know, afraid to access vulnerability, but at the same time to to kind of put it by the curbside when when that's most important. Well, I'm very fascinated by how things work. Uh, I come from a very engineering background and then have creative obsessions or whatever. But just in observing it, that's the pattern that I notice just over and over and over again in the scene is how many people have engineering backgrounds in their family and then the generation after the engineers have taken to creative interest and the things they've been able to achieve with the crossover of those two skills, the creative and the engineering. And a lot of times you get, you know, combos of, of people that have those skills and figure out how to work together in these micro cultures like bands or record labels. I mean, it's a very hallmark, uh, very hallmark pattern that seems to, to emerge there that I think is really, really fascinating that I didn't realize that you you know, fit into as well, but makes it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I, well, I, I think you just put it better than I ever possibly could, but um, yeah, I, I think it's a, a valuable actualization, you know, to, in, in assessment to, to know that. And I think it kind of just, see, you know, you see these, you know, you're an angsty kid that's playing in a hardcore band or something. And then when you turn older, you, you become an obsessive, like maybe, sound engineer or something you know like it it's it's very much kind of pulling from uh maybe who you come from or your upbringing and such um in terms of like that that engineer quality yeah and obsessiveness about things whatever mm-hmm. that be gu- guitar or anything and i don't know something about even finding meaning in like the string factors like is it meaning or do guitars matter do string it feels like they have meaning or matter because what they're attached to or whatever, all that stuff kind of uh, interplays um, is really fascinating. Uh, but let's talk about Color Decay. The tracks that are out already, you know, sound awesome. They're already just, you know, being received really well. Time and Salt are the two tracks that are out. Uh, I'm curious how you approach the lyrics, particularly, you know, on those two 
on those two songs? Uh, I mean, John writes more of the lyrics. Well, he doesn't, I don't think he writes more of the lyrics than I do, but he, for the longest time ever, no one ever touched it besides me in these days. And it, it really started with the act was John coming up with choruses and basically me peppering in verses and whatnot. And it's also a song very much where he had a, a much more of the majority of the song done before it got passed to me. And I filled in the, the spots that needed filling in. Um, so I kind of leave that to him. I, I think sold as well as another song we have out called sacrifice, both kind of teeter on or play with defeatism, which I think is a, um, a component that kind of makes its way through the record more than once. And basically, you know, like you have metalcore and you have heavy songs and there's always like this, like, notion of resilience or like i will rise above type thing and i think on a more human level a lot of the times you know where we we face like giving in or just being like okay i'm done with this like i can't there is no rising above and um maybe there's a positive side to defeatism or to surrender and in, in that but i think salt is a song that plays on that um time just kind of i i it feels like a really, when I was kind of working on it, it felt a bit cliche to sing about time in that it, it, it's certainly not the first time it's happened. Um, but I, I think it just kind of goes, it plays with like these in sort of these environmental metaphors or analogies alongside the, the rapidness of how things work. And like I mentioned to you just a, a few minutes ago, you know, it, it's like, I remember like 05 through 2011, 2012 in terms of dates and then the rest like blurs. And it's always interesting how some tours can be like, you know, it feels like every day is a hundred hours, but then the tour wraps up and it feels like it was two days, you know? Uh, I think the elasticity of time is, is, is fascinating to me. And um, that's what that song plays off of. Yes, uh, time is a, a very weird concept, you know, like it just, it just overall that our perceptions of time seem to change a lot over our, our lifespan, but even just moment to moment, like the ability of time to feel like it's infinite or slow or fast moving is, is always, that's just a very fundamental human experience to lose track of time, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah. or be painfully aware of it or all of that stuff. So that's a... That's a, a definitely a, a big thing. I don't think it's a cliche thing to approach at all. And I think I think the track is really great. Um, what what is different about the making of this album in its total process than it, the ones you've done, you know, in the past? Is there anything unique or new about the production style, studio environment, collaborative approach? Uh, really, this is our first time self-engineering. Um, and that completely falls on John as I, I, I mentioned, or I, I can't do anything with a computer or hardly, uh, so that, that completely falls on him, but basically just with COVID, it kind of started forming in that we were, uh, we had a remote location in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we started working. And then I don't know if it was so much as an experiment because I think Jeremy and John were both completely set on wanting to record the record ourselves. So um, really that just speaks to, you know, the technology. I'm very much uh, a cab and an amp kind of guy, a head and a cab kind of guy, moving air and microphones. But the reality is, is the the convenience of the technology we we took advantage of and then recorded the drums later in a, in a proper studio. But it, it was, it was interesting and, and a lot of fun. We were outside Joshua Tree about wow. 30 minutes from Joshua Tree, 30 minutes to Palm Springs. And Kyle and I both had our motorcycles out and, um, you know, still warm enough to r- be riding there in November and December of last year. And it was, I, I think I'll definitely take that from the experience and I'll definitely want to have my bike out with me because it, it's such a great way to, you know, get, get out of your head a little bit, especially, you know, if you wake up, start on a song, record a different song, you got a backlog of other lyrics you need to further develop. So um, it was a joy by all means. And that getting on the bike gets, gets the adrenaline up or the energy out or, key, you know, what, and after you get done riding the bike, do you want to go work more or do you take a break after that? 
Uh, I, I think it depends. Um, I, I find myself reading constantly, no matter, you know, on an up or a down or the energy is if I'm like buzzing or if I'm ready to like take a nap. Um, and I, I think I almost kind of apply the motorcycle the same way. I, I think it's just like a lot for me is like, I, I hate feeling like I was inside my house all day. Like I love my house. I love maintaining my home as like a hobby, but I need to like get out and do something at least once mm-hmm. a day. So usually for me, it's like groceries or I basically plan my meals to handle day by day rather than going to the store and just getting one big load. Um, to me, motorcycling is kind of like that, you know, it was kind of a time to get away from the bedroom or the, the pool side or our little John's studio setup where there's a, a dining room table where I would sit and write lyrics or the couch where I'd sit and write lyrics. The, the, the bike was just a, a very, uh, pure means of escape. I think, uh, nice. <laughs> short story long, my apologies. You know, it sounds like a just really head clearing kind of thing. It sounds really cool. Um, and I know you got a ton of press today. I appreciate the time. I have just one more question with the time we got left. And that is you guys have uh, been, again, really stable and navigated your business really well. Uh, what has been your interface with and how do you look at the landscape of management and labels? You've been on a bunch of different labels. I don't know if you've had different managers or self-managed, but you've managed that whole thing really well and been able to have lots of good partners it seems over the years i'm not i'm not i'm just guessing but i'm wondering how you at least see uh that part of your story yeah yeah i i honestly the way i kind of see it at this point like it sounds like i'm being a a total suck up (laughs) but like (laughs) solid state is the best like i wasn't setting you up just to i I know i know i know but like i love adam we all collectively love adam so much and we got to see more of the gang this past run too um seeing as we went up to seattle and portland but um i i i just like it's like we we had our relations under the we didn't pay we didn't intentionally get into it but basically we're just swallowed up by majors and it's like you meet more and more people and it's like why don't things get done but at the same time there's more and more people getting paid I think that like I love working with solid state because people have their reason and their purpose and they do it. Mm-hmm. And the communication's brilliant. Like our, our manager, Paul can, has all the nicest things to say about Adam as I do. And Jeremy handles uh, most, most practically all of the business and the finances on his end. And um, I think that's come a long way as far as kind of minimizing, minimalizing and, and shrinking down. Um, has has worked for us and no one has too much on their um but they get that they do what they are there to do and i find that wonderfully with solid state and paul is managing us is is our fourth manager so we've we've certainly had our our taste of different managers and you know even dabbled uh financial management which is just it, it there's reason for it but at a band our size you know we're not a huge band it's just like flushing money away so i think it just comes with experience as far as on the business end and getting a model that that works for us and um Mm. at the same time i i hear other bands experiences and it's crazy how knowing uh bands can be about what is a positive business model and what works for them um, obviously, you know, if no one in the band does anything, you need to have people to do those things. But at the same time, I don't know, I'm rambling. I think it's, it's a lot comes to communication. And for us, it, it took a rather unfortunate long time to figure that out. But, um, I, 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 I see a lot of positive in us figuring out the business end of things and handling that. And if it wasn't handled, if it was a loose end, you know, uh, we wouldn't be here being That's able right. to play tunes and, and record music. Yeah. To be able to survive all the business model changes and everything that just everything that that happens in the landscape is, is hard enough. Uh, and then it, it, there's a theme here that that's pretty clear that you, you speak about both Jeremy and John and stuff that you have a uh, complimentary system of people that share responsibilities like that's i think that's key in any band to last versus just 
good songs or a one dominant ego or the perfect management or the perfect label. It's none of those things, but to have the core of the band be, you know, to be complimentary and share responsibility and be willing to make changes as necessary and get better and better at communication. Uh, I think that's what it takes. So it seems like you guys are a good example of that. For sure, man. You, you put it much more succinctly than, than I can, but it's, it's, it's the same as even making records. It's like we we've, we've had the too many cooks in the kitchen ordeal and uh, we've found a means on the business end for everyone to be taken care of without, you know, everyone needing to reply to everything or something so convoluted as that. Well, we're all glad that you're here, have been here, are still here and have figured out so many things and have done so much for the fans, the genre, the scene, the whatever it is, heavy music in general. You know, we're, it's really amazing to see you have success over the years and putting out music that's this good and this driven and that you're connected to it and, you know, pushing it forward and, uh, you know, all that discovery and everything is, is inspiring and everything else. So we wish you the best of luck and can't wait to see where, where it continues to go, Mike. Thanks, pal. Thanks for the kind words. And, uh, I'm sure I'll be talking to you sometime. Uh, take it easy, man. Yeah, man. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Labeled. My name is Josh Mendenhall, and my favorite scene experience is when Stephen Christian hung out with me after a show and taught me how to open CDs the right way without those little stickers getting stuck to it and without tearing them to pieces. Labeled is produced by Matt Carter and Knucklebreaker Productions at Compound 3 Recordings. Editing and sound designed by Seth Thompson Editorial oversight by Jim Worthen and Adam Scatula. Brand and design direction by Joel Buchelman. Our production manager is Katie Franson. Executive producers, Brandon Ebel and Matt Carter. Additional support from Marshall Freemuth, Tyson Pauletti, and Anna Mrzgocki. Every day, like a desperate dream that never goes away. I'm